my name is Neil Ferguson. I'm the Millbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and I chair the Hoover History Working Group. We've been very fortunate uh, this week uh, to uh, bring uh, to uh, speak with us Carter Mulcasian, author of the uh, new book, The American War in Afghanistan, A History, just out with Oxford University Press. Fred Logeval at Harvard reviewed the book for the New York Times and called it, I quote, a broad reaching and quietly authoritative overview of US involvement from 9-11 onward. Carter's that rare thing, a scholar who's not afraid to go to a war zone, a historian who's not afraid to write history in in real time. Uh, He spent uh, nearly two years in the Garmser district of Helmand province, uh, one of the uh, hotter areas of the Afghan war as a State Department political officer. Uh, Later, he became special assistant for strategy to Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Joseph Dunford. Carter, it's a pleasure to be able to welcome you to the Hoover History Working Group. And I wanted to kick off with with your own question, the one that you posed. Why did things go astray in Afghanistan? What's your answer to that question? Um, Thank you, Neil. Thank you for for the wonderful introduction. So there's several conditions, let's say, for how Afghanistan um, got to the situation that, 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 that it is in now and why the democratic government um, didn't, didn't succeed in it and why, why, why it fell. And you know, we can peel back some of these conditions uh, fairly easily. One of these is that the government too often mistreated folks, too often mistreated people who were poor, who were landless. And those folks then were willing to help the Taliban. There's also the common reason we know about Pakistan that the Taliban were able to replenish, reorganize, and hide in Pakistan for long periods of time where they're outside the reach of US forces or Afghan forces. We also have to talk about corruption. The corruption that the government had, that both would upset people as they had to give money to a government that wasn't necessarily providing for them, but also the corruption that existed in the military, such that often forces on the front line didn't have enough um, arms, didn't have weapons, didn't have the manpower that they were supposed to have to fight. And that would also have implications for morale, that often for soldiers and policemen on the ground would wonder um, if their commanders would really support them and help them. And that would too often make them willing to flee on the battlefield. So what we could see year after year from 2014 onward was that the Afghan forces were unable to succeed on their own absent our advising and absent our air support, generally the Taliban could defeat them. Now, the one other condition I wanna mention here that I think is really important, again, not the only one, but is quite important, is that the Taliban were able to tie themselves better to Afghan identity than the government. That's because the Taliban were fighting occupation and because the Taliban could claim at least to be close to Islam. Um, They were able to say, we're fighting an occupier in Afghanistan, and occupation, fighting occupation is something that's deep in Afghan identity and history that's been happening even long before uh, the Soviets or the British um, came to Afghanistan. So the Taliban were able to better inspire um, their men to be killed or to kill than the government forces were. The government forces, on the other hand, the soldiers and such working with them 
often we're wondering, and you can polls and such to see this about are they fighting on the right side? Um, what is the is the government just? And I'm just to give you one example of this, there was a survey done of seven provinces in, uh, in it was about in uh, 2012, 13, and 14. And in that survey, they surveyed the police forces and tried to find out the reasons they decided to join. There was a variety of reasons they, they decided to join. Some did say, you know, to, to help protect their country. But of those, only 11% said that they had joined to fight the Taliban or to fight anyone. Well, I can guarantee you more than 11% of the Taliban signed up to fight. <laughs> and that survey also showed that there was great questions about the legitimacy of the government, the justness of fighting for a government that was uh, aligned with occupiers and, quest and, and support um, for jihad and for um, uh, war that's endorsed by Islam. And I guess the last thing I'd say that quickly is that when I talk about Islam in this sense, I do not mean that Islam somehow promotes violence. I don't mean that at all. What I do mean is that the Taliban were able to say that we're fighting occupation and we are fighting occupation of a foreigner with a different religion. And I think that can be something motivating. Back uh, at the time that the U.S. went into Afghanistan, there were plenty of people who were skeptical that the United States could succeed in any protracted occupation. I was one of them because it didn't seem to me terribly likely that the US would succeed where the Soviet Union had failed and many people argue the British Empire also failed. Was there an option not to get bogged down for 20 years, but to go in, uh, deliver a very clear message uh, to uh, the Afghan people that the sponsorship of terrorism was not uh, an option that they should exercise and come home. Some uh, people in Washington certainly had the hope that this could be a relatively short-term operation. Tell us why, in the end, it took 20 years before the U.S. cut its losses and gave up. So one big reason here is overconfidence early on. So all that you're absolutely right, people realize that you could become bogged down, the United States could become bogged down in Afghanistan. Donald Rumsfeld realized that he was actually fairly prophetic in this regard. But the Taliban were toppled so quickly and seemed to disappear, deceptively seemed to disappear um, so rapidly that an overconfidence grew within the administration, within the United States overall that there was no longer such danger in staying in Afghanistan, that we could be able to help this country and, and we wouldn't be fighting a 20 year insurgency. The other thing that's really important here is more of a domestic political issue. So terrorism formed a, a new threat to the United States, one that was palpable, but one that was unexpected. And I'm sure you remember that in 2001, 2002, that there was a sense that another attack had happened at any time. And it could be worse, biological weapons, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons. These may have been unjustified fears, but they were there nevertheless. So for President Bush to go into Afghanistan and leave again, he had to worry about what if another attack happens? What if it comes out of Afghanistan or near Afghanistan? What's the political repercussions of that? And they probably would have been great if that would have happened. And in retrospect, we don't think about as much about that because those attacks didn't happen. But at the time, that was important. Now, in that sense of fear of a political blowback, 
that really does last for a while. You remember in 2009 when President Obama takes over, that's not that long since 2005 when there were attacks in London. Um, Osama bin Laden himself is still alive. Um, there's lots of reports in the intelligence community that Al-Qaeda is, is a threat. So when Obama goes into the, the surge discussion, the discussion of leaving Afghanistan is never there. The discussion is how many troops to reinforce it with. Um, and it takes time for that domestic political threat, that, that, fear, that fear of terrorism and the domestic political repercussions to die down. And I would argue it doesn't really die down until 2018, 2019, and then the emergence of other concerns for the United States, COVID, climate change, China, Russia. Um, I think if we don't have that domestic political perspective of what's occurring, then we can't really understand how we stayed there for so long. One of the things your book is very good at doing is giving us a sense of that ebb and flow and uh, reminding us that there were periods when uh, it seemed as if things were being wound up. I mean, Operation Enduring Freedom essentially ends in 2014, seven years ago. And after that, uh, your, uh, your boss, General Dunford, says that what the US is really doing is providing term life insurance to the Afghan government with a relatively small sized force. I often ask myself in the wake of the debacle of the withdrawal, the chaos in, in Kabul that we all witnessed on television, if there was a way of simply extending that term life insurance that might have in the end been preferable to letting the Taliban claim victory in a, in a way that was pretty humiliating for the United States. Talk a bit about how long that term might have been and, and what size of premium the United States would have had to pay if it had extended the insurance policy. Right. Staying in Afghanistan with 2,500 troops was a viable choice. Leaving was a viable choice too. And to be honest, at the time, I, I wrote that I found leaving to be the most um, compelling option. And I haven't revisited that since. But staying with 2,500 was viable. It wouldn't have been pretty. We would have had to use a lot of airstrikes to keep the Taliban back. We wouldn't have been able to hold the same kind of places we've been holding for the past six years, because 2,500 is a lot fewer troops. But we could have secured our CT interests, our counterterrorism interests. Um, we could have made sure that the Al-Qaeda wasn't coming back in any kind of substantial way, or other terrorist groups weren't coming back in any kind of substantial way. But that also would have gone on for, that only would have lasted as long as we were there, term life insurance. Um, once we left, those threats and those problems would have reemerged again. So I think it's easy to see how President Biden really did confront a difficult choice here. A choice between 2,500, a war, and, and yes, I mean, he's right, there probably would have been some risk of things going worse in that circumstance, um, but um, a viable choice uh, versus leaving and facing what we've now faced. Um, so I think not easy by any means. Well, it can't have been easy uh, to uh, research and write this book. I'm absolutely sure the American war in Afghanistan will be uh, read for many years as the standard work on this extraordinary 20-year war that the United States has fought. I just want to thank you, uh, Carter, for coming and, and telling us about the book, encouraging us uh, to read it. It was a fascinating conversation. I've enjoyed this shortened version. Thanks again, and I hope we'll uh, see you back. Uh, and, uh, and, and hope also that, that your next book won't necessitate uh, years in a war zone. <laughs> thank you, Neil. Thank you for the time today. It's, it's greatly appreciated. It's an honor.